0: You're listening to a podcast from the College of Arts and Humanities at University College Dublin. In this episode, a lecture by Tom MacLeish, Professor of Natural Philosophy at the University of York. His lecture, The Poetry of Music and Science and the Role of Creativity in Science and Arts, was the second lecture in the What Is Creativity series, which is part of the UCD Engaged Creativity Research Strand. The series is a partnership between the UCD College of Arts and Humanities and the UCD Humanities Institute. Professor Matleish was introduced by Professor PJ Matthews from the UCD School of English, Drama and Film. Good to see you all and welcome to UCD, welcome to the College of Arts and Humanities. Welcome to the second lecture in the inaugural Engage Creativity Lecture Series. Uh, as many of you will know, Engage Creativity is a new research strand which builds on the deep creative heritage of UCD Arts and humanities, the creative energy of Dublin and Ireland's international cultural reputation. The engaged creativity theme incorporates new approaches to practice-based research and foregrounds the impact and relevance of the arts and humanities in contemporary society. This series of engaging talks and performances by leading practitioners across a range of creative disciplines is asking questions around the meaning of creativity in these changing and shifting times and we are one thing I think we can all be certain about is the uncertainty of the times that we are living in. Some of the issues to be considered include the role of the arts in advocacy, opportunities and challenges of the digital age, the challenges of sustaining creativity in an age of precarity, and the relationship between the arts and the sciences. But Here in the College of Arts and Humanities, we see creativity as a core part of what we do. But in recent times, Debates around creativity can be heard around the university beyond the sacred confines of the arts block, which we like to think is the centre of the universe, But of course we we, we all think we live in the centre of the universe. These debates are taking place with our colleagues in science and in other faculties, getting in on the act. Um, uh, We hear a lot these days about the importance of creativity, and that's great to hear. And this is something that we will be exploring in some detail this evening. But it's my great pleasure to welcome our guest speaker this evening, Tom McLeish. Tom is fellow of the Royal Society. He's professor of natural philosophy in the Department of Physics at the University of York. Um, And we were having a conversation earlier and he he told me that he's the first new professor of natural philosophy in 200 and something years. Yeah, so that's an interesting um, accolade in in its own right. His research in soft matter and biological physics draws on interdisciplinary collaborations to study relationships between molecular structure and material properties. He leads the UK Physics of Life Network and holds a five-year research fellowship focusing on the physics of protein signaling and the self-assembly of silk fibers. But when he has spare time... Um, His other academic interests include the framing of science, theology, society, and history, education, and philosophy, leading to his recent books, Faith and Wisdom in Science, published by Oxford University Press in 2014, and The Poetry and Music of Science, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. He co-leads the Ordered Universe Project, which is a large interdisciplinary study of 13th century science, And from 2008 to 2014, he served as pro-vice-chancellor for research at Durham University and is currently chair of the Royal Society's Education Committee. Where does he get the time? I I do not know. But anyway, this evening, Tom is going to speak to us um, on the poetry of music and sciences. Um, It's a great pleasure to have such a wonderful advocate for the sciences and the arts with us. So please give a very warm welcome to Tom McLeish.
1: It's a pleasure to be back at UCD um, and uh, to see old friends and make new, make new friends. I've had, as I always do when I come here, uh, most intellectually stimulating and exciting day. I'm ever so grateful to be asked to do this um, uh, to your creativity, uh, engage creativity theme. Engage is a very important word, of course. Um, and thank you for inviting a humble scientist um, from the Royal Society and from the Physics Department at York to come and talk about, um, about this and how and what I discovered in writing this book, because the story of the book is also the story of the creative process in some strange and wonderful way, Um, and it taught me more about how the sciences, arts and humanities talk to each other, and how they share common lineages, and how much of that we've forgotten, and how much of it, it's desperate that we recover. So thank you so much. I feel extremely privileged to be talking both um, within an Institute of the Humanities and... um, uh, within the the college as you call them here of arts of so and humanities I think if I understood that right yeah. um, because I I, th- I think what I've discovered in recent years that is that I'm you know only a scientist come by some sort of weird accident mm-hmm. uh, and uh, I, I to be honest in York now I have these two days a week in the humanities department mm-hmm. departments and three days a week in, in 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 physics I'm very very fortunate for this wonderful position um, but I have to say where my heart is. No, I shouldn't. I'm not going to tell you where I think my heart is. Um, but it's, I'm having an interesting time. Anyway, so there's a yeah. lovely picture of York Minster, and there's a lovely picture of Alexandra Carr's gorgeous... It's a picture of her extraordinary installation. Um, and, uh, art, science-inspired art. Science and science literature inspired art. This is for the Dante Festival in, in Durham, when she made an installation which is called Imperium, which is the seven... this is the ten celestial spheres. As you walk around it, you see the ten celestial spheres. Um, and one of my light motifs for the book in the book around visualisation, which we'll come to in a minute, is what C.S. Lewis calls the discarded image, one of the great scientific works of imagination of the whole history of humanity, is the Aristotelian and medieval cosmos. Um, of course, it's not true, except in some really interesting senses. <laughs> um, it is, however, beautiful, Keats. Off we go. So why am I doing this? Here's the reason for the project. B um, J. Carney mentioned the work I did. Very, uh, also had deeply privileged to be asked by the Society, which I've now just stopped doing. Actually, I've done five years chairing the education work, and the best thing about that is it gets me into schools, um, and with teachers, it gets me talking about how might, might we might work harder, particularly in England connecting the disciplines, particularly for post-16. You know, we still have this old-fashioned A-level system, completely unfit for purpose, uh, where it's possible to give up all humanities or all sciences after the age of 16. Uh, we will get there. We will get there. Um, but one of the most oh, painful experiences I have, oh, which is mixed, admixed with joy, I love going to talk to sixth forms about you know, giving them a, gen- a you know, general studies day. And what I do is kind of a gift for that. So it's fun for me to, you know, I do the science and theology stuff. That's what I was doing when I was here last time. And that will run forever, obviously. Um, and uh, I'm interested in history of science. So I do things like this. And then I love asking um, the the, 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 the uh, 18-year-olds, old year olds are really engaging um, with me. You know, who are the scientists here? Oh, um, and I'm, I like to know the choice, the reasons behind the choices they've made for their sixth form studies. And those have just, have have studied only human chosen only humanities. I'm not blaming them at all. I mean, who would who would blame anyone doing history, French, and English? I would fantastic, obviously. But no, it's not that. But clearly, some of these these women and young men are so bright they could have done anything. They could have done physics if they wanted to. Why wouldn't you not do physics? Um, and the really the, so some of them say, "Oh, I just wasn't very good at it." But but the very bright ones don't say that. They say this. They say I chose not to do sciences because I didn't see in the sciences any role for creativity, or they might say no role for my imagination. Now, at this point, it's like a dagger. And what have we done? What have we done? And I know what it is. It's because it's because to get their high marks, they just have to know stuff and F equals M A and you know Boyle's law and you know it's. A, but that's not what science. That's the equivalent of humanities is to do a GCSE in music and it's all about learning the composer's birth dates and office numbers. And that's it. That's music. Is it? Have you never sung a quartet? Have you never arranged a jazz trio? No, you, uh, so there's, there's, a, there's a creative and imaginative aspect of science. After all, here's the truth. You know, sci- the whole point is science is inductive, not deductive. There is no scientific method, by the way. We had this little discussion. Uh, we can, I'm sure you'll want to bring it up again, but I don't think there is a scientific method. Uh, at best, we have a sort of method for the second half of science, you know, how we check our ideas and hypotheses when we've got them. And if you really look at Popper on page three, conjectures and refutations, or the logic of scientific discovery, I think, you will find he does actually admit, actually, hmm, the most important thing about science is to get the good ideas in the first place. There's no method for that, so I have nothing to say. But the next five hundred pages will deal with the logic of scientific discovery. <laughs> but the most important thing is the imaginative bit. What would a black hole really be like? How would it behave? How is this DNA interacting with this protein? What might this virus be doing? What it we have to we have to engage with the world in an imaginative sense, and to have devo- to somehow have have sucked all that comprehension early in the life of pupils that science and, and so that science becomes purely methodological is is a disaster now and what you discover of course is that this whole subject is uh, lies in the shadow of other topics which under which which shadow over us you know why do we have the colleges or faculties we do why do we discuss the sciences and the humanities as if there's some sort of competition actually when it comes to funds i suppose there is but but um and of course we we we, we uh, But that's needless. We we lie under deep shadows, particularly in England. So again, I wouldn't say the. I'm sure there's Irish. The uh, Ireland, I think, is much more culturally aware. And and, but nonetheless, so C.P. Snow, the two cultures thing. I won't read this out, but you'll you'll all know where this comes from. It's his wreath lectures and his book. And Snow was uh, anguished that the governing classes, the political people, you know, the 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 the, you know the, the Eton and Bailey old PPE lot who ran the show then, and things have changed very much, have they, to be honest, um, are all humanities trained to the extent that, culturally, if you don't know Shakespeare, you don't know nothing, but it's actually a cultural lift to deny, for example, knowledge of the second law of thermodynamics, when, according to Snow... The second or third dynamics, or I guess, you know, the behaviour of black holes, is just as much a cultural, common, possessive good, just as much a treasure of our shared civilization, as Keats or Shakespeare or Moliere or or whatever. That's what he wanted to say. I believe that. um, But I think we need to do, we need to work harder to get there. Uh, But of course, it's not just the 20th century shadow. There are previous shadows as well. We have the shadow of the Romantics, the mixed and tense Discontent uh, 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 and, and inconsistent romantics, so Keats, medically trained doctor i won 't ask you to put your hands up if you 've read the whole of Lamia, the, the, the long poem it 's very long, I have actually <laughs> ver brava, brava brava. Um, but you have this is the most commonly quoted bit you know it 's the bit where he 's talking about what we call science, of course it 's still called natural philosophy in those days. Um, and, but it's cold natural philosophy. So for Keats, science is... Now we have Harry Potter, of course, I can tell you, I can ha- know how to interpret this. For Keats, science is the, is the disciplinary dementor of our world. Science sucks the wonder, the imagination and the glory and the mystery from creation. Science will unweave the rainbow. Conquer all mysteries, um, was the gnomed, empty the haunted air, a gnomed mine, no more ghosts, no more, no more, no more little, little, little gnomes, right? Unweave the rainbow. And of course, if you know Eka uh, uh, Poe's statement on, on poetic statement on science, it's much the same thing. Uh, but they didn't invent this thing. Um, paradoxically, my favorite artist is, and poet is, is Blake. Well, no, he's a poet anyway. Uh, and yet, Blake, you know, although uh, he was a consummate um, technological innovator when it came to engraving, absolutely got chemistry and engraving impression, uh, nonetheless radically opposed, maybe not all to natural philosophy, but certainly to Newton, Newtonianism and Baker. Here he, here he writes, my task in the grandeur inspiration to cast off rational demonstration, to cast off Bacon, Locke and Newton, I will not reason and compare my businesses to create. This is the earliest Attestation I can find of an explicit division of the ways between um, early modern science, the whole scientific project as, as defined from early modernism onwards, and creativity. Blake claims that what you are doing, what Newton and Locke, and Locke, not just, you know, uh, so political science as well, is not creative. That's his business. And yet, and yet, well, so, of course, is that the only story we can tell? Is that really the only story can tell? But there are other voices as well. Um, so we could listen. We could go. We could go to many places. So I just and, and in the book you'll find all sorts of lovely examples. But let's 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 listen to uh, let's listen to Ada Lovelace. Well, why not? After all, daughter of Lord Byron, as well, and a poet herself actually. Ada Lovelace writes write, wrote interesting poetry, um, uh, but she also, of course, worked with Babbage on. The mathematics that's become the mathematical framework of computation. Computation has, of course, a mathematical theory to it. And Lovelace got she's brilliant. Um, uh, this is from her, her um, autobiographical notes. Those who've learned to walk on the threshold of the unknown worlds by means of that are commonly termed, by example, the exact scientists. I missed a trick, didn't I? I shouldn't have asked York to call it natural philosophy, I should have called, asked him to call it the chair of those who've learned to walk on the thresholds of unknown <laughs> worlds. That's what, that's what Lovelace calls science. Uh, <laughs> May then, with the fair white wings of imagination, hope to soar, soar further into unexplored myths which we live. She knows that to do mathematics requires consummate, soaring heights of imagination. She also, by the way, records personally that it's her experience of her working practice Uh, when she wanted to set out to write a poem the the best um, discipline the week before she wanted to focus on the poem was to do an entire week of mathematics Mm -hmm. interesting now now winding the clock forward um, I don't know if any of you are uh, 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 um, aficionados of the BBC iPlayer and um, uh, no, but they, just, there's not much on the BBC these days. So, but actually, they, 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 they've had a science programme for many, many years called Horizon. Um, and some of the best ones from years back are permanently on the available archive. And I might mention one or two tonight. One of them is Richard Feynman, before he died. The Nobel Prize for Physics. Rich, Feynman did quantum mechanics for light, basically, uh, along with Tom and and Schwinger, and they share the Nobel Prize for that. They did this in the late 40s. Um, and it's much harder to do quantum mechanics for light than for electrons, because um, uh, for all sorts of beautiful reasons. One is that the, the, light, the classical field of light is a field in any case, so it gives you problems. But, he's, uh, he, but he also, as you might know, thinks about physics in an entirely different way to everyone else on the planet. Um, he's a disconnected genius. Um, he also enjoyed, enjoyed um, art, particularly for the person who was sketching. ...had very few clothes on... ...but um, there are many aspects to his character... ...we won't go there... ...but one of the points he raises in this brilliant BBC thing... ...and it's just an hour of Feynman talking to camera... ...headshot to camera... ...that's it, nothing else... ...no no fancy diagrams or computer graphics... ...and it's electric stuff, I recommend it... ...he talks with an artist friend of his... Um, who, ...who taught him art... And, ...and at one point he recalls a conversation... ...where this art does a Keats... ...does a, does a Keats on him... ...or Blake... ...says Richard... You know, you scientists, you just want to take apart a flower. You know, you're just, you, 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 you suck all the beauty out of it. You have no aesthetic sensibility. In fact, you have a negative sensibility. I only wish you were like us, the artists. And finally, says, no, 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 you're being very unfair. Uh, I can appreciate the beauty of a, of a flower. And perhaps not, I'm sure I don't have the same aesthetically evolved and, and, and heightened aesthetic sensibilities as you. Um, but I can appreciate the beauty of a sunset. But I wonder if in some ways I don't see more because when I look at a flower I see the petals and they're beautiful but I also imagine the cellular walls, the structure inside the flower and the beauty of the processes um, of the membranes and the and the the replication, and then the DNA, and then the evolutionary history of the flower, and the fact that the insects, the pollinating the flower, has also shared a history, and that the colours of the flower can be picked up by the eyes of the insect. And I see beauty at every scale of space and time. because I cannot understand why you think that science gives you less. Surely it gives more. Hmm. Well, if we're on to find, we want to ask another scientist, or we'll ask Einstein. Um, and Einstein well if you know I'll, I'll, I'll get buy anyone a drink at the pub later if they can explain to me what this means because most of Einstein's uh, 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 epithets it's, it's, it, it shrouded mystery itself imagination is more important than knowledge he says that knowledge is limited imagination circles the world Einstein actually called himself an artist because he knows that in order to have the ideas that change the way we think about the world like relativity famously he was 16 years old he had a, a sort of daydream of what it would be like if one could catch a light beam. And Valais said, you couldn't catch a light beam. Well, how does, what does that have to... So this imaginative visual, he has a hugely visual sense as well. So, uh, we have an interesting question here of the role of the creative imagination in science. Can we pin it down? Can we articulate it? Can we articulate historically why we have this... this um, uh, while we start talking about some people who are creatives and their creative disciplines and imagining, therefore, implying that others others aren't, and all this stuff. So um, I, I also I set off and had some conversations about projects in art and science. This is Ken Hay, who's um, a <laughs> professor of art, um, fine art at Leeds University, and an artist himself. I spent far too many years uh, as a professor in, in, in Leeds. Now, I mean, it was a lovely time. And I, I was at that point also working on, so this is the cartoon, I was working on the physics of Sticky liquids, whose composition at the molecular level, doing what Feynman does, diving down, was a sort of molecular noodle soup or spaghetti soup, and and like a pile of spaghetti, if you pulled one bit, all the others would follow onto your lap and um, uh, make a whole, horrible mess. But we, but but also also like spaghetti, if you were able to just pull one strand out, the others wouldn't follow because the strand wind you wind it up on a fork and it it, it, it snakes through the constraints. Of its others, It turns out that polymer molecules do this too and behave as if they're in a tube. A yeah, bit of a science thing for you, but a very visual thing. Um, but I, there was a story behind that that was 20 years old. And I was interested. I met Ken for lunch at the senior Common room. I had this conversation with Ken. Ken, what I'd really love to know is, is how do artists... I mean, what do you do? I mean, what, how do you produce a piece of art? What's the story? I mean, how do you how do you get the idea? from And then what do you do when you first have the idea? How do you go about it? And he said, well... I, I would just love to know, um, and he told me he, he, he illustrated it from a recent project, um, which uh, um, he called Stalingrad, or mixed uh, mixed. Media. It's a mixed media project, battles of history. He had um, he'd come across some really wonderful, but but awful in some ways, uh, very grainy black and white photographs taken at the battle of Stalingrad. Um, very poor quality, but they were records of soldiers from both sides freezing to death, this awful, you know, pointless waste of life. And he wanted to um, help people reflect more deeply, to keep the gaze, hold the gaze, and interpret this, rather than just see them, as a bad photograph, of, uh, but, but to, to feel some of the inhumanity in them. And he thought he could do this with his mixed media, which is what he does, uh, so he, he started talking about, well, I thought it would work with this sort of background. And then, so I experimented with this. And then I found that my initial idea just wasn't working at all. It wasn't, it, 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 it didn't have the effect I wish. Um, so I tried another thing. He, he was talking about this trial and error, making experiments in his, well, he'd call it a studio. It was big, being sound awfully like a lab to me. Uh, he, he was hypothesis testing within a larger project and it was fascinating to hear the story and then he said by the way you know what's a what's a science <laughs> now you mentioned it i'd love to know what a scientist does and i told him about this story this rather distant vision we had of 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 of, of uh, uh, trying to understand this strange molecular polymeric soup and out of which comes a strange viscous but also elastic behavior and how we had many many problems and um how people were criticizing us, but we somehow believed in it in the early days. And uh, then he eventually he showed me something. These don't do justice, but he found a solution and they're absolutely wonderful. Uh, this poppy red texture. And taking the photographs to one side, so the eye is led through the blood-red poppy fields of into the uh, uh, and into the pictures and, 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 and out again. And then so in the end the solution was quite simple. And in the end, our solution was quite simple, but the, but the road was a very rocky one. And so we actually we said, well, this is wonderful. We've, we have a we have a sort of store, common story of creation, we were of creativity, and we we put an exi- we put an exhibition together, a dual exhibition for the British Association of Dance for Science. At Leeds. no one ever came to this, but it was a great <laughs> fun to have. That. <laughs> but that but that started me off. And uh, more recently, the last five years or so, I've become after the educational experience at schools. I said, I've got to do this properly. So, so I've I've um, had. Dozens of conversations with scientists, with chemists, with physicists, with biologists and engineers and mathematicians. Um, And actually, this is brilliant, because it does take this. Because if you ask a scientist to to, to tell you the story, they will assume that you want the conference talk. You know, the polished version. No, no, I don't want that. I can read the paper. Um, I want the real story. I want the ups and downs. I want the dead ends. I want the original idea and how it changed. I want where, insofar as you are able to tell me where the creative imaginative sources are, can you tell me? If you can't tell me, that's interesting too. Um, and as a control experiment, I did the same with um, with uh, artists, fine artists like Ken, and more of them, and poets, and novelists, and composers, musical composers, and novelists. Um, and again, it doesn't take quite so much. Uh, but with that, not. But, um, but it takes some, and, and eventually, you know, even the scientists will lean forward. And they look over, shoulders it's shoulders. Actually, very funny because I was in the shower one day and had this. You know. Now, so I, I now will just have to summarise. There's two ways of talking. I can talk about the story, and I can talk about that's a sort of diachronic uh, uh, way into this this thing, or I can talk about the structure, the sort of synchronic thing. Um, so uh, I've got two slides to summarise what I found, right, which will be frustrating, but at least it gives you the, the overview. Uh, the, 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 over, the overview, and the, the first thing is a synchronic one, and this is the story of how the book wouldn't wouldn't get written, because what I thought I was going to do, you see, is to is to write a nice number of chapters on how creativity works out in science. And then a nice little few chapters on how creativity works out in in the arts. And there are people who have written about this in the past. There's background history on this. And then a lovely final chapter, which is an undergraduate essay, just comparing and contrasting the two. And if you try to write that book, I'm sure all of you have far better than me, you find you can't. Because that's not how it goes. It doesn't divide that way. Now, there are different modes of creativity that I was hearing. I was hearing different languages, different metaphors, different. But they weren't a humanities mode, arts mode, and a science mode. They were other. Now, uh, there are different ways of cutting this cake, but, but the ways that naturally cut run across between the humanities and the sciences and the arts, not down them vertically. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting my way is the best way, but it's one way. And it goes like this. I think there are three. You can do it. You know, I've found other systematics of four or five or six, but three will do. There's the visual. Mode of creativity. I mean that quite literally, um, both a scene and imaginative scene. Now, clearly, artists work in that. Visual artists work in that way, but many scientists, including mathematicians, also do. Einstein, uh, uh, again and again, so I'm a visual thinker. The maths comes with great difficulty and pain and sweat much later. See things first, and many physicists do that do uh, that way. And then, of course, uh, there's there is there's the textual mode. Poets obviously work 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 this way. Novelists write this way. We think in words. But there are strange entanglements with science here. Did you know? So Pat Wall, now some of you who know, know the Durham team will know, will know Pat, Professor of English at, at, at Durham, who, um, Virginia Woolf scholar, but also very interested in the entanglements of, of science and literature, the novel. And she said at the beginning of this project, she came to me and said, Tom, you know, I'm very interested in your project. You do know, don't you, that the coincident origin of the early English novel and the ex- method of experimental science... Is not a coincidence, don't you?
0: <laughs> oh,
1: yes, I did. I mean, I didn't even know. I mean, I, I'm not even that far. Um, this is a wonderful story. It turns out that, that novelistic fictional writing and experimental science are, have had a cousinly relationship for centuries. Um, and I might tell you about that it's textual. And then, okay, there's a third mode. But it's surprising because when you think you have no pictures and no words, so whatever you got, you might just have a vacuum. But you don't have a vacuum you have a transcendent place of one, Because that's where music and mathematics live. Oh my goodness, so this is ma- the music and mathematics story plays part of, is, is one of the sub-questions that arises in this. And we can be glib about this, can't we? Oh, my younger sister, you know, my cousin Jessica, you know, she's brilliant clarinetist. so obviously she's going to be doing maths A-level. I mean, I've heard this sort of thing. But why should that be true? What is going on with music and mathematics? Right, so that's the, that's the, that's the synchronic, Structure thing, um, and we we'll, might talk about that in a little while. But before we do, um, let's do the diachronic thing, which comes from the conversation I had with Ken. Because since nineteen ninety five, when I had that conversation, I have heard that story dozens and dozens of times. Now, it's not—I don't want to be naive about this and claim it's a kind of boilerplate. Pattern. Of course, everyone has a slightly different version and different versions. But it would be ridiculous to pretend that there wasn't a sort of creation narrative of of the human story of how people bring something out of nothing, whether it be a work of art, a poem, a scientific theory, or whatever it might be. And it goes something like this. This a little version of the story. Um, There's an initial vision. You see something, but you see it dimly or mistily in the distance, because if you saw your poem in perfect clarity, you'd just write it and you'd be done, right? If you saw your theory of the protein interaction, you'd just write it down and you'd be done. And you're not done. You see it vaguely. You see more question than answer, but you see vague shadows and answer. The next step is really interesting because what that initial vis- vision elicits is not a method. Uh, it's not. It's not even a word or two. It's an emotion. It's a desire. And this was fascinating to me, particularly when I've heard this time and time again that even because this is another part of our misshapen science story we imagine that the scientific disciplines are some sense purely cognitive, rather than affective, that the, you know, the cold logic of a pure mathematician is the frame for all of, of emotionless science, well don't believe it, it's nonsense if you want to have proof of this Go back to the Horizon archive and dig out Simon Singh's production of Andrew Wiles' story of proving Last lasting. Have you ever seen, anyone seen this? It's fabulous. Anyone, anyone can do it. He's done a fabulous job. Anyone can understand this. It's all done pictorially. This is one of the great mathematical achievements of the, of the 20th century. And yeah. I'm, I'm privileged to know Andrew Wiles. He's extraordinary. Very, very reclusive. It's so a quiet child. I mean, he shut himself around, shut himself in his office for seven years at Princeton. You know, there was all this dialogue, we couldn't do it in the UK because of ref and everything, He couldn't do it. And he did this thing. And he's head to camera. And this is a Cambridge, Princeton, pure mathematician, can't even look you in the eye, typical. I mean, he's a very shy man. He and he's describing to Simon Singh, into the camera, for the 250th time, the moment in which he sees this extraordinarily lovely mathematical landscape of whatever constructs he, after a lifetime of being managed, could cease, that he could make it work. And he burst into tears. Mm-hmm. Desire. All emotion. In fact, it, the, 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 the emotional and the, the effective and the cognitive and their relationship in the story of all creativity is one of the most surprising and delightful things I've found. And another thing we have to be honest about. I've got more stories I can tell you about this. but um, uh, And we're going to have to do a little bit of medieval philosophy in the time because I should say, the other thing I've done... You, can actually, the medieval uh, project, medieval science project, I'm working on, the last century in which I found philosoph- philosophers honest enough to talk deeply about the relation between the qualitative and the affective, uh, is the thirteenth. Oh, apart from a wonderful short brief section in David Hume, who. Went up in my estimation, there. Yeah. So you, you then have to do this. You then you have this series of create, attempts to create. There's a, there's a, it's hard work, Next is hard work, lots of hard work. You try lots of things. And because it's unknown and creative, we, most of them don't work. Uh, weightlifting guinea pig, I thought, oh we go. You experience constraint, failure over and over again, and sometimes that gives rise to dark emotions, because you aren't getting anywhere, and very often you just have to give up. For a day, a week, a month, sometimes years, and then if you're lucky, but sometimes you don't. I mean, there are variants to this, and then and then and then and then over and again. At some point, there's a spontaneous upwelling, upwelling that appears to be a gift. That's where the story of the muse comes from you yeah, know, Shakespeare's Hundred Sonnets. Now, where art thou muse, that rusty muse? It's uh, <laughs> a glorious sonnet. I don't know if you know the Hundred Sonnet. Uh, uh, Shakespeare is complaining about his muse not being present, so he can't write poetry. So he writes a sonnet. <laughs> Fabulous sonnet about not being able to write poetry. Um, a bit, and then this idea, comes. this is the aha moment, uh, and there's fabulous cognitive neuroscience to do about this. It's very clear that the subconscious... But everyone knows about this. The poets and scientists all know, but the mathematicians. Mike Berry, one mathematician at Berry uh, at Bristol, told me of the day, it's in the book of, the, of the, uh, his experience of being in a railway carriage. Um, he's looking out, he's in, near Vienna it's at night, he's next to the window. He remembers the, the raindrops coursing down the window. I'm really interested that this moment is... is Imprinted into his mind at the level of the raindrops. It suddenly pops into him, his mind, that there's a connection between the deep connection between the Riemann hypothesis and quantum mechanics. And he knows the last time he thought about that was seven years before. He's not been trying to think about it, and that gave rise to some wonderful work. And then, of course, this wonderful aesthetic and emotional response. Now, you don't, of course, he, he, and the excitement, more energy, because it's as if you see the, you, for at last, you've seen the mountain, you see the the <coughs> mountain, you've, you've tried many, many paths through the woods between you and the mountain, and you've found all the wrong ones, and now you, at least you know the right path, so you know the way there. You still have to do the work. Uh, so, I know, interesting... Um, if you know Christopher Booker's um, Seven Great Plots, the, the literary historians will know this one. I think he missed one out. I think he missed this one out. You know, there's, there's the, you know the, 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 the deceit is that every narrative story can fits into... Uh, it's either the epic or the, the romance, boy meets girl, everything goes well, the, the, the tragedy, boy meets girl, girl meets boy, it all goes terribly wrong. Um, uh, the the journey home, that's the um odyssey, you know, the great battle, that's the Iliad, and um so forth. Uh there's this story. It's the creation narrative, by which, I, of course, I don't mean, and here's another one, by the way, he should have mentioned, the, every culture has creation narratives, the story of the world. Uh, that's what God does. But this is the creation, the human creation narrative, and it happens again and again. Now, we don't have time to go into all that now. We only just have time to do what I want to do between now and we stop is give you a little more, few more details about the three modes, uh, and then we can have a discussion. Does that sound okay in our time? So, mode one, visual. Uh, uh, more of Einstein. Um, I, I've already told you about this. so this, uh, You can read about Einstein, but actually, I wanted to, 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 to go into impressionism and art a little, bit, a, a, a little bit and just suggest ways in which commonalities work out one level, one level further down. So this is my favourite Monet. It's hanging in the Philadelphia Art Gallery. So you probably don't know it because it was in private hands, like most of his antique work, for most uh, private American hands, for most of its life. It's recently come back into public um, gaze. Now this doesn't do justice to it, but but you can if you look at this gorgeous picture, you know it 's sunset because the trees are underlit, the pines are underlit in red, so you know the sun is setting over there, you know the bottom of the sun is red, you know the top of the sun is yellow because of the glass actually. and you can almost feel the onshore evening wind on your face because you know that the, the clues and the clever Greenberg says by the way of the impressionists in in his critical work that one of the great innovative steps they made made is to is to create this double plane. It must make the canvas worthy of artistic inspection itself, not just the image. And when I read that, I had a little aha moment, because what a theoretical physicist like myself has to do, and what we must never forget, is that the theory of reality we are building is not reality. However, it corresponds to reality. It's sort of the best we can do. So this double vision of going up close to something and then standing back from it is, is part of the creative dynamic. Um, and being self-aware of what you're doing is, is important. And um, by the way, when you, when you stand um, and, uh, at, at about a couple of yards or two, two metres from the, from the trees, the trees move in the breeze. I know, you don't believe me. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go into vision. Before we... Okay, I, I believe me about this. Well, let's think about vision. The, the Plato's theory of vision is, of course, extramissive. We know. Now, it's... it's, it's, it's you know, we're, we do look at the ancients through the wrong end of a telescope, don't we? How stupid Plato was to think that visual rays go from our eyes to the object. Obviously, they can't. They, I can turn the lights off, for example. Well, they, you know, they knew about that. Um, but they had good reasons for thinking about extramission for vision. For one thing, if it were really true that I was receiving rays of light from all of you at once, I could, I'd just get a confused mess. How could I probably sort that out? Well, think about that, how it works in imaging and lenses and it's That's highly non-trivial, how you sort that out. But in any case, it turns out that he was Right. In the following sense, if you think about the whole train of visual perception, we call it phasium now, we know full well that we interpret what we see all the time without basing priors. We're all in a seminar room. So you're interpreting all the time what you're seeing in front. You know there's this crazy guy waving his arms around. It's not a tree or anything. And you're, uh, but if you were just two months old, that's not what you, were th- you would know, believe me. But we, we, we learn to see proof. Ooh. Sorry about this, but who can see movement in that picture? You know? Now, of course, y- y- those of you who can see it's, it's uh, um, Ashtavakra Katuka's rotating snake's illusion. Uh, of course, you're not going to believe me. There isn't any picture. I have to. I should really print it up and hold it up. There is no movement in that picture. All the motion you are projecting onto that. Um, and what this brilliant artist is doing is, is in the periphery of, you might see a bit more motion in the periphery of, you move your eyes around is, mo- is using the way that our, our perception moves our eyes all the time but, but paints particular uh, 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 creates particular um, interfaces there that use th- that perceptive process to trick you into seeing, uh, in, into motion of course the of course trees move in mono, he knew how to do this whether it's subconsciously or not, so vision—you know—you are, are creating what you see there. There's no motion. Do you see, see why I'm going? The reason that the visual metaphor is so powerful for creation, particularly ide- the creation of ideation, it's the it's the vocabulary used. I see. We say when we understand is because all acts of seeing are acts of creation, of the imagination. That's why, of course, no one can agree on what they saw in the courtroom. After you know, they're, 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 you can get banal about this, but there's a good signs of reasons for this. Um, I had a you know, my, um, a personal, personal tale here, personal tale, um, or to do with motion. Uh, I'm working on protein physics at the moment. Here's a, a very stylized picture of the way biologists look at a protein molecule in a particular coarse-grained representation binding to DNA. I remember seeing this about 15 years ago in a seminar, and in my mind's eye, seeing something quite different. Because when a, when a biologist sees structure, a physicist sees motion. And this is, the Brown, this is Brownian motion, the motion we now call heat. And again, one of the great <laughs> cultural gifts of science, I think, to, all, to, to, to humanity as a whole, is our understanding that, that many properties, most of our properties of materials, come not from the, the ingredients of, the molecular ingredients of the world, but their constant random motion at the deep molecular scale. This is, and it's a lovely gift from physics, to from biology, from Robert Brown, the botanist, um, and then Einstein took it up. In fact, it turns out that this Brownian motion was the final, final window um, into the molecular world that proved, even to Ernst Mach and Oswald, that atoms existed. It turns out that that was 1908. We've only had atomic theory nailed the, in terms of existence of atoms for 112 years. Yes, it's quite extraordinary. Um, but I saw this and realised that, uh, that that this this moving object contained a potential functionality because of its because of its motion. But it was a visual piece of piece of ima- of, of, of illusion come alive. And you know, in terms of um, uh, vision again, um, gra- uh, general relativity—the very fact that, that, that gravity is ge- can be thought of as geometry—it's a beautiful, deep thought. And it's a shareable thought, it's a poetic, visual thought that orbits of planets around stars can be and an appropriately thought of as the curvature of space and time, and that that provides us an underpinning for, for what Newton could never explain why, why this law was, was, was there. Um, I, here's Robert Gross test, we're going to meet him soon, sure later. They knew about this. One of the reasons I love medieval natural philosophy is because their, their scientific theory, their reflection on what science was and where it belonged in the liberal arts and human activities is much advanced of, of ours. This is from his commentary on, on the posterior analytics of Aristotle. He uses a strange Latin word called Solerthil, which is really the, the scientific mind's eye, the scientific imagination. James of Venice invented this word. Is the penetrating power in the virtue of which the mind's eye does not rest on the outer surface of an object, but penetrates to something below the visual image. For instance, when the mind's eye falls on a coloured surface, it does not rest there, but descends to the physical structure of which the colour is a representation. I'll continue to read it, and it'll come back in a minute. In um, effect, it then penetrates the structure until it detects the elemental qualities of which the structure is itself an effect. Chess wrote a, uh, the first mathematical treatise on, on three-dimensionality of colour in 1224, by the way. You can see why I'm having fun. With this humanities science um, uh, uh, project, but 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 th- th- this is an example of the of the delicacy, grace, and and, and perspicuity of, of medieval reflection on, 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 on science. Um, just one one uh, final uh, caveat on, on vision. Um, it's not all happy. Uh, Here is Emmanuel uh, Levinas talking in in writing in Outside the Subject on on why he thinks. That the visual metaphor is imperialistic, because all visual appropriation of the world is an imperialistic one that forces you to stand back. And he wouldn't say that, wouldn't he? But it's a good thought. It's a good thought. Maybe in our interactions with the world, we should be immersive as well as um, uh, panoptic. If I can, that's, that's a word. Um, we should immerse as well as stand back. And I think that's what I think. You know, good science practice does 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 both as well. But we need to move rapidly on, because I'm just throwing out things for question time, really. The textual, the novel, and the experiment. Well, if they don't believe me, let's ask Joe Priestley, my discoverer of Oxygen, who could say without explanation, expecting his readers to go, yeah, it's a good point, Joe, aha, uh-huh. works of fiction resemble those machines which we contrive to illustrate the principles of philosophy, such as globes and horrors. OK, as Priestley, it's obviously like a globe, right? Uh, really? Yeah. Uh, what about Iris? listen to Iris Murdoch. Writing about novelistic writing. writing, she writes in extensive. It, it enables an attention to the exhaustible detail of the world, the endlessness of the task of understanding and the apprehension of the unique. Now, if you run that sentence by yourselves again and replace novelistic writing with experimental science, and pass it. Do you know what I mean? Works okay. So what was going on in the late six, 17th, early 18th centuries um, around experimental method and Robinson Crusoe, for example, or Gulliver's Travels. You know, people argue... I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I kneel at the feet of the English department here, but, uh, you know, people have different ideas of what the first novel is, and you go back. But actually, I think this is a novel that's written by this, this amazing lady. It's Margaret Cavendish. Now, Margaret Cavendish is a big heron of mine. First woman to attend a meeting in the Royal Society, early on in its first decade, and ruthless critique of experimental methods. And again, wrong end of the telescope stuff over and over again. Silly medi- medievalists, why didn't they invent the experimental methods? Silly Greeks, aren't they silly? No, they're not silly. Here's the story. Actually, there it turns out there'll be two stories, because... Um, Aristotelian physics says there are two types of motion: a natural motion and a violent motion. And a violent motion is what nature does when you hit it. So, if you want to do, if you want to learn about nature's natural motions, the last thing you do is interrupt it, because you never learn anything. Right? That's one point. Second, nature is complex, multi-component: storms, clouds, fire. You know, interactive. If I want to learn about that. How would I be expected to learn anything about a complex system by you know, mixing one metal and one acid in a test tube and seeing what happens? See what I mean? It's artificial and it's oversimplified. It's, it, no, it, there's a long story here told by, among others, by historian of science Peter Harrison, and it turns out that to get to experimental method, in spite of those knockdown philosophical ob- obstacles, you actually need a theological imagination. But that's not for today, that's for another time, but, well, unless you want to ask me about it. But, but you see, Margaret Cavendish writes her, she writes a uh, philosophy, but she, she puts the argument in most stringent terms into her science fiction novel, Blazing, Blazing Worlds, in which the scientists, the philosophers, all people have animal heads, and it's a strange world you get to by going north, to the North Pole, and then jumping onto this other world, Philip Pullman. Uh, I wonder where he got this idea from. Um, and she, but the, in this other world, the telescopes didn't help them find any more. It just gave them bigger arguments. Uh, so something is going on in reading and writing, and reading and writing in nature in particular circumscribed ways. So if you think you can learn, as Boyle thought he did, about pressure by putting a particular gas in a clean way in, a, in, in this apparatus then maybe it's the same sort of thing you learn when you imagine one man marooned on a little island and he's got a little bit of ammunition and there are strange goats and then he sees footprints that aren't his one day and you stand back. If you listen to novelists or read novelists when they speak or write about their process of writing, the language they use of their characters and tell me if I'm wrong here, is observation, over and over again. Um, Thurber put it rather comically. He was asked once, you know, what's going to happen in the next chapter? I don't know. Only know that when I get my fingers on the typewriter. Uh, it, there's a bit of that. So, um, re- uh, and I think there's, there's a... Of course, there's, there's a whole metaphor here about nature being a book, after all. Um, but I, I wonder it's God's second book, you know, there's scripture and there's nature. Here's, here's Robert Boyle. Boyle The World is a great book. Not so much nature as the god of nature, crowded in such lessons if you had the skill. The true Egyptian hieroglyphics. Um, Crick and Watson did not invent the idea of, of nature containing code. Boyle did. In fact it was Hughes and Victor back in the in the twelfth century did. But I'm yeah, I, I have in mind that part of a, the early modern shift um, has always engaged with a literary metaphor for nature, um, but one in which we move from pure reading to one of writing. And that's what the novel signifies. Um, uh, If you don't believe me again, now again, just a little bit. So there are two interesting books, um, and you don't need to read the text, but just the... Can you see the story? Can you see these words that I've highlighted here? Flag the story of invention. Ideation, observation, incubation, illumination, very in to form, um, those actually come from... the Well, they're, they're there in, in Henry James. So Henry James writes a book called The Art of the Novel, which is his, his creative prefaces for his novels. And, and you can see, once you've, once you've heard the story, you can see him tell the story. One generation later, William Beveridge, who's a physiologist, in the same genre, clearly aping the genre, writes The Art of Scientific Investigation. Um, now this is all about science but you see the words the words again so this entangled well uh, it's more than parallel i reckon it's entangled story of experimental science and novelistic writing uh, go, go on and on and on and on and on um, into the uh, the transcendentalist is is amazon talking about science not knowing its depth to imagination uh, but but pointing us towards goethe wordsworth talking to us about poetry. Um, it's very gendered, obviously. Poetry and the man of science is a pleasure. Um, uh, but saying that if there is a difference about huma- the humanity art of poetry and science, it's that the knowledge of the one cleaves to us, all of us, as an essential part of our existence. That's poetry. That's how poetry works. poet says something, we all get it. Um, but the scientist has a, a, a private knowledge that's not shared. And he then goes to say that one day science will inspire much poetry, but only when science gets out of its, its private world and becomes publicly, publicly shared. Well, we should, press, we should press on. But there are ways in which that could be done. And I think Humboldt uh, was able to do it. It'll come back in a minute. Uh, there we go. And, and Virginia Woolf. But we, we've got to move on. We have just a few minutes left. And I've got one more category to talk about which is um, mathematics and music. Uh, I'd love to introduce Henri Poincaré, who's the great French late 19th century mathematician who prefigured much of what Einstein did, but also wrote wonderfully and in depth about the self... from the self-reflective point of view of a mathematician who wants to know where mathematical ideas come from, what's the cause there Among the thousand products of our unconscious activity... um, some are called to pass the threshold. That's the aha threshold moment. Yeah, while others remain below in the subconscious. And Franco even developed a theory of the subconscious mind because he, being a mathematician, he calculated. He asked. He said, hypothesis, maybe what my subconscious does but is it's a it's a, a an automatic mathematician. It just takes the symbols and." rearranges them in all sorts of different ways until it spots a way that might work and then it says, oi, try that yeah. but he worked out that it could never be true because there are f- combinatoric numbers are so vast There's, it's inconceivable that any computer could ever work through all the possibilities um, because, there are, because the numbers soon get far larger than the numbers of atoms in the universe in fact, unbelievably larger than that so he knew that so he conjectured that our subconscious mind was also structured as our conscious mind with a sort of aesthetic and that's mathematics and what about music which also shares this transcendent wordless and pictureless George Steiner left us a couple of weeks ago didn't he by the way did you know that his scholar wife died four days later absolutely wonderful in a way I mean I love it when that happens I've known a few couples, so I think that's been, that's been true. And they're both absolutely stunning scholars. Um, and I've, I love Steiner. He um, talks about music as an allegory of, of, of mathematics. But the, the, the insight... I'm not saying I've solved this one, but the, the, the best insight I got from around this mathematics-music parallelism is from June, June Horton at Durham again, who's a musicologist there. And I, I have <laughs> been ridiculously self-indulgent at this project because the thing is, if, if you've got to write about art, you must well write about your favourite art or your favourite mathematics, just doesn't matter which example you have, just use your favourite. Um, when it comes to music, I'm afraid, well, no, let's just park Bach, because he's just sui generis, okay? I mean, you can't put Bach alongside anyone else. You park Bach. Who else have you got? Well, the next person you have, as far as I'm concerned, is Robert Schumann. I mean, no one can touch him. And I've loved Schumann's music ever since I was just so high... And uh, no one has written an analysis of Schumann. Schumann just invented genres. He invented the piano quintet. You know this? You know, and then he wrote the best one. The first piano quintet in the world was the best one, Schumann's piano quintet. He, but it doesn't always work. He invents a genre, um, I'm a bit amateur horn player, I should say. So, um, for concerto form, for four horns and orchestra. It's, uh, and if you want to have a happy evening, it'll only take you 15 minutes. YouTube, Concert Duke for Four Horns and Orchestra, Robert Schumann. I promise you will not be wasting your time. So, I, But it's a very, very creative piece at the heart of romanticism, overshadowed by Beethoven. He reads Bach every day with Clara, so it's deeply. he's a deeply mathematical kind. Another one thing about Schumann is that he, he's the editor of Neue Deutsche für Musik in, 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 in um, uh, 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 Leipzig, and uh, he is the best musical commentator of the 90s as, as well, uh, uh, what makes good music and not. So he's an absolutely fascinating character, and totally bipolar, and the poor, poor guy, you know, um, died young. As all creative artists should do. Yeah. No, 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 I was going to say that. Um, and so, But no-one's done this analysis, So, but Julian said, look, uh, there is no analysis of the concert sh- I'm doing a project on mid 19th century German romantic symphonic music. It would suit my project. Why don't we just sit down for two weeks together and work through the Constitution and do an analysis? So another good reason for buying the book is if you want uh, the only published analysis, Schumann's concertstück, Foreman's orchestra. It's in there, thanks to Julian. And then at some point during this, I'm really telling the story for this reason, he leans back in his chair and he says, you know, this has made me think, what really distinguishes composers of the first rank is their ability to set up strategic problems of harmony on their creative pathway, and solve them. And, and for those of you who know how mathematicians prove theorems, I know you all do. Um, you will know that this is what they do. Um, you, you can't see your way to the theorem. You can never see your way to the theorem, otherwise you'd have done it. But you might see your way to the next harmonic problem, the next lemma, the one that you feel is somehow on the pathway. Now, I think we've touched a common nerve of music and mathematics, and I think that's closer to their true cousinliness, um, that the, the, the red herring is number. Just because you count in both, I don't think is the issue. Um, however, there are other things. Both have weird notations. Um, and, you know, it's worth looking at the notations, even if that's half the room will be scared by this, and half the people will be scared, you will be scared rigid by that. But don't be, don't be, don't be, don't be. Look at the way the, the Q's and the H's dance around each other. Look at the symmetries and the patterns. Um, look at the way the notes go up and down. Look at the... Look at the, the these are going up, these are going down. You know, the, the, what I'm saying is here that even if we're not experts, we can do a bit of paleography on the creative tools of the musician and the mathematician. And, of course, it behoves us to learn a bit more if we, if we can. Of course, that means that, and this, ten- this turns out to be moving particles. Now... What I'm going to do now, is, because it's time to finish, is just to go, go to the end. I have a, one little story, but, I, but the reason I can't talk about it now is because it's part of the story. It's the entanglement of thought and feeling. And this is, by the way, Julie, I will say, this is Julie Cown, uh, Cornfield, chemical engineer, friend of mine at Caltech who told me the most glorious story of the emotional energy that can drive a science project. And it was actually the energy that wanted to prevent that ever happening ever, ever again. Um, and this, is, this was, was quite wonderful. So we'll just finish with um, Robert Gloucester's once more, in the 13th century, talking about, now I said, didn't I, that you have to go back then to find a nuanced discussion of how the affective and the cognitive work together, in what human beings do that only human beings do. And here, in his introduction to the liberal arts, 1215, the works with capacity consist either in the mind's sight, the Latin here is aspectus, or in the desire of the same, is affectus. Now, aspectus and affectus aren't quite sight or cognition and um, emotion. They're a small, if I might be persuaded, allow the, 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 uh, the, the metaphor, a slight coordinate rotation. Uh, of, of those, but in the decisions of these same motions are actions. Sight at first looks, then it verifies what's been looked at or cognizant, and when the fitting or harmful have been verified within the mind. This is this first stage of the, of the, of the story. Desire strains to embrace the fitting or retreat itself to shun the harmful. So Euclid, he's all got a moral framework for this as well. For Gross Test, you do go to university, so you learn to do what is right and live in the right way. And attracted to the right things and flee the harmful things. But, but you know, we might, want to, might not want to moralize it in quite that same way now. But what's interesting is his capture of the entanglements of thought and emotion. Um, and uh, if you still don't believe me that poetry and science belong together, we'll ask the bard. And this is Theseus, of course, the end of. Midsummer dream, and all the lovers are with the right other lovers, not the wrong other lovers. And the wedding day is uh, is upon them, and it's all the strange. Everyone's home away from the strange forest, and he's got this little discourse, hasn't he, about the poet and the philosopher and the lover and the, and the king and the poet's eye in fine frenzy rolling that glance from heaven to earth and earth to heaven, and is the poet and as imagination bodies forth the forms of things unknown, the poet's pen turns them into shapes and gives to airy nothing a local. Heritage. And a name. And I think you see, that's what science does. Because if you see, poetry is, I'll selfish for this one, don't I? If poetry is the shaping of otherwise shapeless imaginative energy by the constraint of form, and that's where, and I think arguably it is, push me back on that, what could call on the greater imagination than to reimagine? reimagine the entire universe. And what could constitute a tighter form than to constrain that imagination with the universe of Science as giant home. Okay. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening to this lecture from the College of Arts and Humanities. University College Dublin. For more information on the What Is Creativity series, check out the page on the UCD College of Arts and Humanities website.